You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 16. Paul greets his friends. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church of Sancria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Give my greetings to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who are in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves. And give my greetings to the believers from the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers. And to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. And also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Give my greetings to Asecretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philoagus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other in Christian love. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. Paul's final instructions. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings too, as one of the Lord's followers. Gaius says hello to you. He is my host and also serves as host to the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings, and so does our brother Cordus. Now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong. Just as my good news says, this message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.
Morning, everybody. Morning. Haven't met you. My name's Jonathan, one of the pastors here at this church. And uh, as a pastor, I have the privilege from time to time of officiating at weddings. And that's what I was doing uh, around this time yesterday, officiating a, a wedding in Williamstown. And, um, and here I am. That's me. And um, I... Uh, <laughs> Really? I, um, I called Renee because she was out with the kids all day yesterday and um, said I'm on my way and I'm wearing a clergy collar and she said pics or it didn't happen. So I um, sent that off to her just as proof it's that time of year. Actually, I hadn't worn that clergy shirt for 10 years and um, so it was a momentous day for us all. And, uh, and, um, and, and, and so I got to do this wedding and it's obviously just a real privilege to be able to uh, marry two people, like being able to do the declaration that I say once we've uh, done the vows and signed the papers, and right, that, that declaration, I, I always get chills, and partially it's because it reminds me of my commitment to my wife and what that means, how deep and, and sacred that is, um, and then to be able to pronounce that as being true for these two people beyond legal designation of marriage to be able to say what God has joined together, let no one separate, using Jesus' own words. is just a beautiful thing. And, um, and so, um, beyond the actual service, the, my favourite part of um, being involved in weddings is being able to, after the service or the reception or whatever, to be able to hear speeches. And I know that you know, not everyone loves speeches, and I have to say, the best man speeches... They're my least favourite part of the day, all right? Because it, you know the guy the night before has Googled the ten funniest jokes that he can find on. Like, I'm not so much into that. Like, guys, we can do better than that, all right? Uh, but, but, but what I do love is hearing the parents of the bride and groom just speaking about uh, how proud they are to see their son or daughter getting married and what it means to them to sort of... that this is sort of the culmination of 20 or 30 or whatever, how many years of parenting, and, um, and really that's why I love this chapter of the Bible, because I think it's like Paul's father of the bride speech. It's his opportunity as he rounds out this letter just to name a few people and praise them, commend them for the work that they're doing for the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to just follow along with me. The first 16 verses of this chapter are just Paul talking about these people and commending them giving a little speech on their behalf. And I just want to look at not all of these people, but a few just to give us a sense of um, some real people in a real church in the first century and what God was doing through them. So pick up your Bible. We're going to jump right in at verse 1. Verse 1 to 2 says this of Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may have from you, which she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So first person off the rank, Phoebe, this amazing, remarkable woman. She's a deacon. Uh, We don't know if that's an official title or if it's it's just a Greek word for servant. So she's a servant-hearted person, irrespective of what office she might hold in the church. And she's a servant in the church in Sencre. That's in 
Corinth, and we know that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. So she's probably with Paul as he's writing this letter, and she's ministering to the church there. And, uh, and throughout church history, she has been the one identified as the deliverer of this letter to the Romans to the church in Rome. She's the only one that Paul mentions who's not a member of the church in Rome, and she's the only one that Paul says is coming to the church in Rome. So it follows that she's the one who's delivering this letter. So she's not just a servant-hearted person, but she's someone who's trusted, highly trusted. You've got to think about this. The letter to the Romans written out on, in parchment would have been, in its own right, invaluable in terms of money. Not a lot of paper and pens floating around in first century Corinth. But beyond that, just the preciousness of this letter, the, the, the necessity that it goes from Corinth to Rome safely, if she fails, we don't have the last 24 weeks working through this letter. You know, under God's sovereignty, I'm sure he figures it out, but this responsibility is heavy on Phoebe. And so she's not only servant-hearted, but she's responsible, she's trusted by Paul. And, and the fact that she's a woman shouldn't escape our attention as well. In a society where women's testimony wasn't trusted, you couldn't, you couldn't testify in a court because you're just a woman. You, you, you don't understand these things, right? To be able to be entrusted as a woman, not only uh, in ministry in the church, but as the deliverer of this letter. And beyond even that, he says, she's a benefactor to many, including me. Uh, the, the, the word there is patron. So it's likely that she was not only servant-hearted and trustworthy, but wealthy, that, she, that she's likely uh, the owner of some kind of business that's doing well, and so she's able to give generously to support Paul's work and the work of the church. So, I mean, this is the kind of woman you want in your church. We, we want Phoebe here, right? A, a woman who is servant-hearted and trustworthy and a benefactor, someone who's generous with what God has given her because she's so invested in the ministry of the church. I love Phoebe. She's amazing. Um, and, and so Paul commends her to them, first cab off the rank, just welcome Phoebe, treat her as you ought to treat her. She's worthy of your honour, she's worthy of your hospitality. That's Phoebe. And, uh, and then he moves on and he talks about some other people now, um, not, unlike Phoebe, they're not from outside of the church in Rome, they are actually members of the church in Rome, and, and here's what I think he's doing now, he's trying to establish a connection between him and the church. Remember, he's never been to this church, and he's just written a really heavy letter to them. And, and it, you can imagine a scenario, although he praises them for being, um, for being servant-hearted, godly people, you can imagine a scenario where they've received this letter, they've had it read out over the space of half an hour or so, and they feel like, oh, uh, this guy's coming along a little strong, like he doesn't even know us. Who's he to be telling us this stuff? And they knew who Paul was. They knew he was an apostle. They knew that he'd been set apart by God to do ministry for the Gentiles. But there wasn't this connection. And so I think what he's doing, the next 15 verses, 14 verses, he's establishing a connection with them. Here's how it might play out uh, in our experience. If you can imagine a really famous Christian person, like, um, I don't know, he's... He died recently, but think Billy Graham famous, all right? There aren't that many famous Christians today. I'm, all right, so I think Billy Graham, known around the world, right, in his time. Um, 
And uh, if you can imagine him putting together a little video message for the church in Caroline Springs, and we play the video, and, and he's like, yeah, I'm looking forward to come to uh, do a, a, a rally at the MCG. There's going to be 100,000 people there, really looking forward, hope to see you there. And then before he goes, he says, oh, by the way, um, just, just while I'm here, say hi to Phil and Petra for me. Those guys are awesome. I love those guys. And... Um, and Dave and Ali, just passing my best to them. I, we, we, we had some good times last year. And, um, you know, Albert and Rodney, those guys, love those guys. They're like sons to me, right? You, you can imagine if, if that happened, it would establish a kind of connection between us and him, though we'd never met him, though he would seem kind of far off from us and, and, and sort of removed from us. You establish a connection through these personal relationships. And so that's what he's going to do now. He's going to mention people who are in the church in Rome that he knows of, that he in some cases has lived with and ministered with. And so he establishes this connection. So read with me, verse 3 to 5. He says, Greet also the church that... uh, Sorry, 3 to 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only I... But all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Stop there for a second. Priscilla and Aquila. These two are mentioned actually six times in the New Testament. And I love this. Going back to the wedding that I did yesterday, I love the fact that the six times that they're mentioned, they're always mentioned together. They're never mentioned individually. It's always Priscilla and Aquila, which maybe just because it's nice to say, like, Priscilla and Aquila. Like, it rolls off the tongue. But I think probably because they're so together in their ministry. There's such a, such a team, such a partnership in ministry that these six times that they're mentioned, which is a, a large amount for, for two people that aren't sort of central characters in these, in these accounts, that they're always mentioned together, Priscilla and Aquila. And um, they're actually, in, tr- in church tradition, they're, they're kind of cited as two of Jesus' 70 disciples. Remember when Jesus sends out the 70 and, uh, and tells them to go out and minister around J- uh, Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. That's, that's church tradition. But what we do know, almost certainly, is that they were part of the church planning team for the church in Rome. Remember a few times I've told you there was this, the, the group of Jews who established the church in Rome and then are expelled by the Emperor Claudius and then return and then Paul writes in this letter, it's likely that they were part of that initial church planning team. And so we, we hear about this in Acts 18. Um, Luke writes, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Right? So that, that's their story. They were some of those Jews who were ejected, who were expelled by the emperor. And so they have this long-standing history with the church in Rome. They're very much part of the fabric there, but because they were expelled, they, they, they had to leave there. But rather than say, well, we got ejected because of our Christian ministry, so we better just keep it on the DL for a while. They, no, instead, wherever they went, they established ministry 
and mission, and you know that you have these great accounts of them coming across Apollos, who's like this fiery preacher with great gifts, gifts that go far beyond Paul's own gifts at, at, at rhetoric and preaching, but he doesn't really get the gospel fully, so they hear him preach, and rather than shut him down, they actually go to him and say, here, let, let us tell you a little bit more about the gospel, and, and it, it not only encourages his preaching, but it fills out his theology. So they had this amazing ministry. They're tent makers, just like Paul is, and so they share this common um, vocation that, that funds their ministry. So they live together for a while. He loves this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And so he says to them, by way of commendation, greet these brothers and sisters. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. They're my co-workers. And he says, they risked their lives for me. We have no idea what he's talking about. No one knows how this happened. But apparently at some point, they put their lives on the line for Paul, and, and so all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And what's happened to them now is they've gone back to Rome and they've become small group leaders. They've established a small group. So what, what, what's clear, especially from this chapter, is that there's the church in Rome that Paul's writing to, but then there are all these little churches in Rome, house churches, small groups, as we would know them today. And he says, they are leading one of those small groups. Check it out. I'll read a couple of verses. Verse 5 says, greet also the church that meets at their house. And then he goes on um, in verse 14 and 15. He says, um, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. That's a, that's a way of um, speaking about the brothers and sisters who are with them are, are, are brothers and sisters who are meeting with them, are worshipping with them. They're part of their small group. They're meeting in their house church. And same with verse 15 as well, the brothers and sisters who are with them. So this pattern of one church meeting in several locations it goes back really to the first century, to the first church. And you pick up on this in in, in passages like Acts 2.42 and so on. And so this gives us really a basis for what we're doing by way of the big push between here and the end of the year that Phil talked to you about last week in, in terms of establishing um, one church in Caroline Springs that meets in many locations by way of small groups, house churches, if you like. And so if you're interested at all in making that a reality, if that seems like a good idea to you, if you're like, yeah, these guys had it, we want it as well, then whether that's because you want to be a leader, whether that's because you just want to open up your home, uh, whether that's just because you want to be a part of this in some way by way of encouragement or prayer, then you just need to come meet with us 10.30 or whenever the, the service is done. We'll meet in the kids' space, is that right, Phil? And um, we'll chat, 20, 25 minutes. So get, get involved in that. I just really want to encourage you in that. Let's keep going. There's so much to get out of this. These people, I just I love them. Um, uh, okay, I want to introduce you to, um, to four women, four women who have two things in common, all right? So verse 6 says this, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. And verse 12, greet Trophina and Trophosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Uh, greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. What's the, what's the thing that these four women have in common? They all work really hard. They work really hard in the Lord for you, for the church. These are the women who are just turning up every day to serve. Working hard, toiling. We've got some of those women in our church. I don't need to name them. You know who they are, right? 
working hard, toiling for the Lord. The other thing they have in common is that they're completely forgotten. Like we know nothing about them. Nothing. I mean, I, I digged around. I tried to look well, like, like even, you, you, you know, like in the case of Phoebe or, or Priscilla and Aquila, there's sort of church tradition that has gathered around them that this might be a bit of their backstory. We're going to see the same with Rufus in a little bit. But these women, nothing. And so this, this really struck me this, this past week when I was looking at this because I was like, I was thinking, am I willing to be like one of these women? Just ask this for yourself for a second. Am I willing to be like one of these women who works really hard, hard enough that I get listed by Paul in, in his little roll call of important people in the church, working really hard and utterly forgotten? That's a challenge, man, because I, I think in 200 years' time, no one's going to know me. No one's going to remember me. Maybe my great-grandkids might have some idea about who I was, but generally speaking, nothing Nothing. Am I okay with that? Like, am I okay to toil and toil and toil for the next 60 years and have no one remember me? Here's, I did a little thought experiment this, just this morning, actually. I was thinking, if you went to these women, if you were able to just jump into paradise where they are right now with Jesus, if you were able to jump in there and just say, just, we're in heaven now, so you have to be honest. Are you a little bit ticked? Like, you worked really hard. You gave your life to the ministry of the church in Rome, and we just, we just don't know anything about you. I think their response would be, huh? <laughs> like, who cares? What, 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 we, what us, these four women, what we're experiencing now is all of life all about Jesus in its fullness, right? This paradise, this eternal life is all of life, all about Jesus. That's all we care about. And so what they want to know is that church in Rome, are they making all of life all about Jesus? Because we're here now and we can see that's what it's all about. So the question becomes, am I content to toil and work hard for the next however many years the Lord gives me? Am I content with that if the effect is that in 200 years this church is making all of life all about Jesus? That's a real test because I've got to admit to you, part of me, and I don't know how big it is, but a good amount of me really wants to be remembered and honoured and enshrined. I want to be more like these women, these four beautiful women working hard in the church in Rome. Last one I want to look at is in verse 13. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. So Rufus, this is another one of these church tradition things, but um, really a, a, a good amount of uh, the church has believed that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. He's the guy, remember, who carries the cross for Jesus. When Jesus is making his way to the crucifixion, he can't, just can't go any further because he's been whipped with a whipping that kills people 
most of the time, and he just can't make it to the top of the hill. And so Simon is yanked out of the crowd, and he has to carry it for him. Mark mentions in his gospel, which is written to a Roman audience, we, we think, he, he mentions that, that Cy, Cy, Simon of Cyrene has two sons. One of them is named Rufus. And so uh, it's church tradition. We don't have historical documents per se, but the, the church has always thought this Rufus is is the son of this guy. And so that's interesting at one level, but the thing that jumped out to me from this passage is not the guy that was named, but the woman that wasn't named. Did you, see, did you hear that? So he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. I, I read that, and I read it maybe 25 times, just over and over again, and I got really emotional thinking about it. that there's this woman, the mother of Rufus, who has been like a mother to Paul, is just so beautiful. Like my favorite doctrine, if I have to have one, my favorite doctrine of Christianity is the doctrine of adoption. The idea that God adopts us as his sons and daughters, that we're not just slaves of the Lord, we are that, but more than that, we are made his children, like we're his sons and daughters. He's adopted us. We were orphans. We sang about it in the first song, right? And he makes us his sons and daughters is very beautiful to me. And then I think about my own life in the last 30 years without a, a mother on this earth and just the, this, this very guttural drive that I've had for 30 years to find a mum somewhere. Like this, this acknowledgement that I have that I'm missing something. As much as I can say, like, yeah, my dad's done an amazing job. You know, raising four kids on his own, he's done, he's done the best that he could. And as much as I, I can say, like, God works all things for the good of those who love him. And in some weird way, he's, 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 he's taking even that and, and, and making, it, making it good for me. Like, I cannot deny the fact that it would be better if she was here, like it, it would, it, it just would be better. And, I'm, and, and this is something I'm really wrestling with now, and you can just be part of my ongoing counseling on this matter, but I'm, I'm really wrestling with the fact that, that the more I get to know my mum through her writing and through speaking to people who know her, I can see I'm just the imprint of her. Like I'm just like her, or she was just like me, or we, you know, like we just like the same things, and we, we, we seem to be wired the same way. And, so, and then I've lived all my life from... from Rather than from um, modeling, I'm, I'm living out of memory, and that's, that's, that's deficient. It's, I'm, I'm missing something. And I can just see over the years, by God's grace, it's been God's grace to me to give me women in the church to be like a, like a mother to me. Like there's just been really, really, really important times. Like I remember, I re remember really clearly breaking up with my first girlfriend. I'm like 14 or something. And, and I don't know why I, I had a girlfriend. I didn't want a girlfriend. It was scary. And so I just kind of stumbled along with her for a while and then I re like remember clearly going to her front doorstep to tell her we can't we can't go out anymore I'm terrible for you like you you need someone better than this you need someone who wants to be your boyfriend and so I did that 
But the crucial thing was the half an hour beforehand in the car, before I walked up to the front door to do that thing, speaking with a woman named Lyndall who had become like a mother to me. She was able to talk me through it and encourage me to go ahead and do it. Like this is a, this is a woman who is like that for Paul. She doesn't even get named, but it's a beautiful demonstration of what the church can be at its best. Do you know that there are kids in our church who don't have fathers and don't have mothers? Either they're literally not there or they may as well not be there. And one of the most beautiful things that I see in our church is when I see people stepping in to be mothers and fathers to little ones who need it. You know what that is? That's being like God. I could keep talking all day. I'm, I'm out of time. We need to keep, keep, keep going, all right? So th- this list of people that Paul knows and loves, and you can just see how excited he is. He's about to be on his way there, and he's already said, I'm going to spend some time and just enjoy the time with you. He's going to get to re-embrace these people that he, he loves and that he knows and that he trusts. And I and just want you to see... If you read through that, those verse 1 to 16, there's this thread that ties it all together. There's this common foundation for all of these relationships. And it's not mainly we're all in ministry together. It's not mainly like we've been through stuff together or that we risked our lives together and we had this great time together. This is the main thing. I, I, I want to just show it to you, right? The basis for relationships. Verse 2, welcome her in the Lord. Verse 3, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, the first convert to Christ. Verse 7, they were in Christ before me. 8, my beloved in the Lord. 9, my fellow worker in Christ. 10, a palace who was approved in Christ. 11, greet those in the Lord. 12, workers in the Lord. 13, worked hard in the Lord. 14, chosen in the Lord. That's not a mistake. Like you write the same thing out over and over and over again, you know what you're doing. He wants them to know this is the basis of the fellowship that we have. This is the basis of our relating to one another. This is the basis of our friendship. It's that we have each other in the Lord. We are brothers and sisters. It reminded me of one of my favorite quotes about the church. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, it's from his book, um, uh, Life Together, I think it's called. It's a great book, really little, you should read it. He says, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others And I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. This is the thing that we share. The most vital thing, the thing that keeps us in relationship with one another is the fellowship we have because we're all in Christ. If you want to build a church that's not based on that, or if you want to build a church on anything that's not that, then all you're building is a social club. 
All you're going to end up with is a a small group of like-minded people who can tolerate each other. But if our union is based on our union with Christ, then we've got something beautiful. Then we've got something lasting. In fact, like he said, we've got something eternal. So he's painted this picture out of reality. It's a, it's, a, it's a portrait of reality of the church in Rome, and it's beautiful. I don't know if you noticed, like, in that list, there, is, there are Jews and there are Greeks, there are men and there are women, there are rich people and poor people, there are young people and old people, they're all together. Our vision for this church is a multicultural transcultural, actually, multi-generational, transgenerational, like that, that is that we are multicultural, we are multi-generational, but we, 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 we move beyond those things. Those things aren't the most important things to us. The union that we have in Christ is. And so, no, we're not going to start a youth service. Why? Because we want the youth to be singing with the old people. In the same way that we're not starting a men's service, right? Like, we want to do this thing together. It's this beautiful picture of the church of Jesus Christ, and it's a melting pot, and it's messy, and it's got its issues, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's also vulnerable. And so... He has this call to arms in verse 17. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. He's not messing around with this. He knows that he has a church of little lambs and he knows from Jesus' own words that wolves are going to come in amongst them. And you know what happens when wolves come in the midst of lambs? Like, only one thing happens. Unless the sheep are able to arm themselves and protect themselves. We should hear this and hear it very soberly. Like, this is not something just to brush past. What does he say? Have nothing to do with them. Keep away from them. John says in his um, second letter to his church, all right, this is what he says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's binary. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the gospel, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. These guys aren't messing around. They can see the beauty of what's been assembled and they can see the vulnerability of what's been assembled by God. And they're desperate that the church is protected. So you've got these people, these people who want to come in and they want to, they want to destroy what Jesus has built on his gospel. And, and the question is, what's, what's driving these, these, these wicked people? Verse 18, he tells us, he says, such people are not serving the Lord Christ. They're not like Phoebe, a deacon. They're not serving the Lord Christ. 
They're serving their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Do you know what we call that? We call that a Christian bookshop. I love Christian bookshops. I'm glad they're still going while all the other bookshops on earth have failed. Right? I, and, I'm, and I love going there, but I'm telling you, it's like playing duck, duck, goose when you walk through a Christian bookshop. And, and why? why? Why are people spending all this time writing thousands of words that are deceptive? They're writing these books because they're serving their own appetites. They get money from it, lots of money from it. They get followings, right? They get famous. They're the appetites that are being served. Why are people buying them? Why? Because the people who write them are smooth and they flatter, they deceive, and because people who read them are naive. I'm not, I'm not judging, I'm, like, I'm just saying this is what's going on. So he says, be awake, be aware. This is real, this is happening. And it's going to keep happening unless God protects us and until he finishes them off. Verse 19. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. What a great prayer for his church. That's my prayer for this church. That's my prayer for me. Innocent about what is evil. Wise about what is good. That is, like, just write that down. Like, life goals. I want to be wise about what is good innocent about what is evil. And then he says, and gives them hope, hope beyond their own ability to be wise and innocent and so on. He says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That, I love that word picture. It's great juxtaposition, right? It's just poetic. God of peace will crush Satan. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That's how much higher God is than his enemies. That's how much greater he is than the father of lies. Don't fall into this trap of thinking about a sort of yin and yang universe where there's good versus evil and it's kind of, we don't know which way it might go, God might win or Satan might, no. The God of peace from his lounge chair crushes his enemies. He doesn't even need to crush them under his feet. He crushes them under our puny little feet. And so ultimate victory against God and his enemies will be meted out in the time to come. And so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And that's the book of Romans. That's it. One of the most beautiful documents we have from ancient history. One of the most important documents that we have in really setting the course for Western civilization and an intensely personal end to an intensely 
monumental letter. And I can just imagine Tertius in verse 22 introduces himself for the first time. He's the guy that's been frantically scribbling as Paul's been dictating, as the Spirit has been inspiring. He's, he's the guy that's the secretary writing out the letter and he says, you know, that hi from me as well in verse 22. And I just imagine Paul finishing this letter and turning to Tertius and saying, well done, mate. Good job. And what do you do? I don't know if you've ever dictated a letter to someone, but what do you do when you finish? You say, read it back to me. Just imagine Paul and Tertius, I don't know, they're sitting in a, in a room somewhere, maybe Phoebe's put them up in, a, in, in her house as a benefactor, and he says, read it back to me. And for the next half an hour, he, he reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he keeps reading. He keeps reading through, verse, through chapter 3 and gets to that, that the, the darkness of our sin and the, the justice of God's condemnation of us and, and, and then to the, the beautiful turn in the book, the but now of verse 21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The beauty of that passage demonstration of the gospel in it. And then through chapter 4 and 5, the Old Testament history, the, 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 this, the, the virus of sin that has passed down to us through Adam in chapter 5 and, and chapter 6, and then into chapter 7 and the, the wrestle that we have, knowing that we've been forgiven and justified and made righteous and yet experiencing the, 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 the ongoing effects of this virus of sin and the, the yearning that we have to be delivered from it into chapter 8 and the most glorious, glorious chapter in the Bible in my view what it looks like to live empowered by the Spirit, to live as new creations in Christ, that even in the midst of great distress, we have union with Christ because of what He has done on our behalf. And so into verse 31 of chapter 8, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then plunging again into the depths of Paul's theology in, in chapter 9, this, this wrestle that he has with God's sovereignty, knowing that God is absolutely and all, in, in every way irrevocably sovereign over all things, including salvation. His plan for Israel and 
its culmination in the kingdom of God and the new covenant, and then into chapter 10, the fact that he balances the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, and then he says that we get to participate in that plan, that, that, that if we don't speak the gospel to people, then they'll never know. But if they hear and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that he raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And then on and back into God's plan of redemption for the people of Israel in chapter 11, his engrafting of us Gentiles along with them, his his cosmic plan of salvation. And into chapter 12, the, the ministry that we have as believers of, of, of living out, living out making, uh, making all of life all about Jesus by living as a sacrifice in humble service to the body of Christ, putting our faith into action primarily by the love that we have for our fellow image bearers. And then on and on and on, chapter 13 and chapter 14 into chapter 15 and finally finishing in chapter 16, and I just see Tertius reading this back to Paul, and Paul welling up with just the majesty and magnitude of this letter, that he knows that while he might have dictated it, it's all come from God. It is, in fact, inspired by the Spirit. As Tertius reads those last few words, I can just imagine Paul looking at him and saying, It's good. Get Phoebe. But before we send it off, I just wanna I wanna pray for my brothers and sisters in Rome. I wanna bless them with my final words. So Tertius takes down this final blessing, and I want it to be a blessing for us here as we close the book on Romans. So let's pray together. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen.